and welcome to Be the Serpent, a podcast of extremely deep literary merit, with your classy and sophisticated hosts, Alexandra Rowland, Freya Mosk, and Jennifer Mace. On today's episode, we're discussing a brand new release, The Jasmine Throne by Tasha Surrey. And welcome to episode 95, The Jasmine Throne. I'm Alex, and I'm Alex. I'm Freya, and I'm Freya. I'm Macy, and I'm Macy. We are three redheaded fantasy authors who cannot tell you our true names because that is between us and the nameless god. <laughs> and today we are absolutely delighted to be doing a deep dive on The Jasmine Throne, which is the first book in a new series by Tasha Yay! Suri, which just came out recently. Uh, dear readers, this is a great book. If you haven't had a chance to read it yourselves, I would recommend <laughs> that you run away from yes. this episode. Run away, dear listeners. Go exactly. buy the book immediately. And spoil everything. We're about to be gremlins well not everything but a lot of things and we're about to get very excited about things and i think that you would just have a better time if you knew what was going on with this book (laughs) so go read it we'll wait here for you we won't we won't start the episode until you get back um so we'll just chill here you go read the book come back real quick and then we'll have the episode i'm assuming you have now come back dear listeners thank you for reading that book so quickly wow gosh uh before we get into any further gremlin nonsense what have we been reading lately fellow servants i have been on a romance novel binge that's so out of character for you freya well usually never heard alternating romances (laughs) with other things but i just recently had a a period where all i wanted to do was read romance novels So I have read four in particular that I want to wow. tell you about. Two of them are by Scarlett Peckham, and they are the second and third in a series. I think it's called The Secrets of Charlotte Street or something like that. And it's Georgian set. I think it's just pre-Victorian mm-hmm. um, or like, yeah, I can't quite remember exactly what time period, but it is a historical series. Um, they are all male, female romance novels. The first one, The Earl I Ruined, is incredible. It's a fake engagement trope romance, but it is also the only historical I've ever come across where the one of the two main characters who used to be a sex worker is the man. Hmm. So it all revolves this series around this secret, uh, discreet club for people who want to indulge. Basically, it's a kink club. Mm-hmm. And the male character in this is an earl, who, when he needed to earn money, basically became a secret and very high-class courtesan, hmm. uh, specializing mm-hmm. in sort of uh, domination and giving pain and things. And it is a really incredible romance novel. Like, I absolutely loved it. The tropes are played really well. The negotiation of sort of power and secrets and carelessness between these two people mm. is really, really good. So I loved that one. The third one in the series, The Lord I Left... The male character is an ex-priest who is now an investigator trying to stamp out vice in the city. (laughs) And the female character is basically an apprentice dominatrix. And they they go on a road trip and get snowed in at an inn. Uh, It's actually quite chewy and dark in places. It's got a lot to do with the, the nature of faith and temptation and a lot of that stuff that you would expect if one of the characters is an ex-priest. But all the character work in this is so, so, so good. And the romances are very 
difficult. Like you really do not know how these two people could actually end up together, mm-hmm. but the endings always land amazingly well and feel really earned. So I think I would recommend that if it sounds like something you'd be into. And then I read two male uh, male fantasy romances. The first one is not quite out yet. It's Seducing the Sorcerer by Lee Welch. I have been selling this to everyone that I know as Howl's Moving Castle if instead of a 20-something flamboyant wizard who fell in love with a cranky girl, the sorcerer is in his 40s, he's very tired and stressed, uh, and he falls in love with a surly ex-groom who accidentally ends up in his castle with a very strange magical horse. So, sure. Yeah, yeah. Uh, like, it's got a really light touch with the magic. It really reminds me of T. Kingfisher's books, like Sword Heart mm-hmm. and The Paladin's Grace. And so the magic is good. There's a little bit of political intrigue. All the secondary characters are really well built out. And the dynamic between the two main characters is really mature like they're both people who are not in their the first mm. flush of youth they've both had relationships and they don't really have much patience for miscommunication mm. and so there's this real feeling of emotional maturity in it uh, which i really really liked and also the sex scenes are very kinky and very hot so definitely nice. check that one out the last one i will talk about is the bachelor's valet <laughs> by arden powell And (laughs) because we love a valet romance in this house, this one... Is that how you say it in the Australian dialect? It's technically how you say it in... It's technically that's how the English did say it. It's like valeting. Oh. Yeah, I know. It's weird. It's a French word. Like, it should be valet. But, like, yeah, yeah, they they said valet. Cool. No, carry on. I was was just curious about it. Except my brain automatically goes valet. Right. Because I think... Yeah. Like, and when we say, like, valet but service the, and stuff. But in the British, in the British it's, it's actually valet, right. I think, like, historically. Huh, yeah, it's weird. Not modern, cool. Alex. Historically. Like, if you go yeah, in yeah. the UK nowadays, most people yeah. would also read it valet. We'd say valet. Yeah. yeah. Anyway. Cool, that makes sense. I was just curious about it. Please continue. Uh, so this is a book for you if you have ever gone on to Archive of Our Own and searched for <laughs> Jeeves Worcester fan fiction. <laughs> what you really want is a lovable, beautiful, not very smart himbo of an aristocrat uh, who is just completely obsessed with his very competent uh, manservant. Well, who wouldn't be? <laughs> yes. And in this version, there is also magic. There is a plot to get the young man married off, which his manservant has to foil with the help of some very capable lesbians. Mm. Uh, and it's just delightful. It's really fluffy. It's fairly low heat in terms of the sex scenes, but the romance is gorgeous. The narration of this young man who has almost no emotional insight, but is just so in love, (laughs) is just really, really delightful. Uh, It just soothed my heart. It was wonderful. Mm. So that's me. I've been reading romances. Very nice. Uh, Meanwhile, I read approximately 400,000 words of Game of Thrones fanfic in the past three days. Don't talk to me. Um, And I actually, I started a book, you guys. I started a book. Um, I am halfway through Hunger Makes the Wolf by Alex Wells, which is a, one of the books that people recommended to me when I was calling for like space proletariat stuff. Uh, So Mm. it's a book about a mining planet um, under the ground under the heels of a despotic corporation um, in deep space and there's all sorts of like very like 
the planetary bits of Firefly, you know? Everything Mm -hmm. is dusty Mm -hmm. and there's a criminal biker gang with witchcraft out in the desert who sometimes come by and murder the foreman in the middle of the night. I think that's the only thing I know about this series is that somebody told me about the biker gang. "Hmm, I love the biker gang. They're great. Um, And I'm having a lot of fun with this book so far. Um, I also read today a really great uh, Zhang Cheng fic uh, called Cast Your Bitterness Into the Sea by Kilerki. Uh, which involves Zhang Cheng getting married off to an older woman who is the leader of the Wen sect as a way to fix canon, which always fond of. And I am back to having 32 eggs again because the curse is apparently recursive. Oh no. Oh no. (laughs) Endless eggs. One of our dear listeners sent me egg recipes through my website and I love them very much. Thank you for sending me egg recipes. Apparently I need them. Dear listeners, please, everyone else, also send Macy egg recipes. Oh, God. <laughs> oh God. The Only more things eggs. like are, are meals, not cakes, you know? Okay. Yeah. All right. Like, well, good luck with that egg yeah. situation. Egg, egg um, situation? Egg situation? Anyway. Anyway. It's an exceptional problem. I have been working on a quilt lately, a quilt yeah. project. So I have been listening to. Uh, podcasts, of course. I'm mm. back to listening to a lot more Campaign Skyjacks. Dear listeners, you have certainly heard me yelling about Campaign Skyjacks before if you have been with us for some time. If you have not, it is a fantasy actual play podcast based uh, with world building that's partially based on the music of the Decemberists, and it's very uh, anti-colonialist, and it is about some sky pirates, and it's extremely queer. Uh, highly recommend some of the best storytelling I've ever heard, and they have wonderful, wonderful background music. Uh, and also their audio editor is just, like, incredibly talented. Uh, it's everything that you could possibly want. Please, please go listen to it. Uh, and also, I read a book. I'm also, I'm kind of with Macy on that, yeah. it, like, reading books is hard lately. Hard. Um, but I, I read yet another Victoria Goddard book. I'm trying this thing where I'm trying to, like, pace myself to see if I can, like, mm. like last for, <laughs> and have at least one more Victoria Goddard book to read for the rest of the uh, episodes mm. that we have on the <laughs> podcast. I'm running out, though. I only have a couple more oh. after this, so um, we'll see how that goes. Fingers, fingers crossed and for Alex. I- I can always reread Hands of the Emperor. Anyway, <laughs> this one that I read was Till Human Voices Wake Us, which was her very first book. Uh, I can definitely tell like the ways in which she grew between this book and The Hands of the Emperor and her more recent work. Um, but like, there's still so much here that I really, really loved and enjoyed. It has a sad crying boy in it, which, as you know, is one of my favorite things in the world. Um, it has some, I, I can't tell you exactly which trick it is because I don't want to spoil it for you, but it is the exact same trick that I pulled in A Choir of Lies. Uh, and I was extremely excited to see that she had the source material then like the background in this particular thing the same thing that i do to be able to pull off the same trick it's very cool anyway um it's great it is about raphael who is the uh lord magus of isthar which is basically fantasy earth and he is embroiled in this millennia long uh wager uh against uh the sorceress circe and it is just about to come to an end. 
uh, and they have like only one more challenge left mm. before the end of this game. Uh, and feelings and sort of recovery from trauma and coming back to yourself and like rediscovering who you are after trauma. And uh, yeah, it was it was great. I really, really enjoyed it. So um, before we continue with the actual episode, dear listeners, it is a little bit early. This is episode 95. Usually we tell you about the extravaganza on the episodes that end in seven. Mm -hmm. But since we are going to be doing something a little bit different for the episode 100 extravaganza, which is going to be our last episode before the great hiatus, um, we wanted to tell you a little bit early so that you would have some... Uh, extra time. What we're going to do is that it is going to be a two-hour-long episode. Hello, scribes. Before you start freaking out, yes, we will, <laughs> we will be pay paying you, you double. <laughs> we will pay you double for that episode. Don't worry. You're still going to be getting your normal rate. Um, uh, <laughs> having having soothed the scribes, uh, yes, this is going to be a two-hour-long episode, a marathon of an episode. Uh, so we will need many, many, many questions. Uh, you can send them once again not through smoke signals, not through pigeon mail. Casey will not Please. insist on pigeons for the last episode. I promise. Thank you. The, the best way to send them to us is through our email, mm-hmm. which is serpentcast at gmail.com. We will also accept them in uh, on Twitter or uh, Tumblr asks. I haven't checked that in a while. It I feel exists. like it exists. That's Those the come thing to that the we email, right? They come, in, they come to the email as well, so we can tell when we no. get them. No, they don't. There's <laughs> no. an email from Tumblr telling you you have one. You have to go to Tumblr to read it, but you do get a little, in the socials I... tab, it gets filtered out of the main view. Mm. Oh, I never check my Gmail, social tab, Gmail ever. moves it over into the social tab for you. I don't mm. even look at Witchcraft. my social tab because it's all <laughs> things that I'm not interested in reading. Anyway, um, please please email them to us. If you would, yes, if preferably. you could email, that would be great. Um, and if you want to give yeah. little, if you have anything that you want to say about the podcast uh, or anything you've particularly enjoyed over the years, we probably have enough time for things that aren't just questions as well, do you guys think? I feel like we could have a, a, a couple few? comments as yeah, well if, if, if like people to. had things. Yeah. And I still would love pictures of your birds. Sure, if you have a bird, send us <laughs> Just for birds. Just for Macy. <laughs> yeah, I would love to get like a picture of a bird in all of our time of asking for pigeons. Tag Macy on Twitter with a picture yeah, of your bird. Okay, fine. That's fair. That's fair. <laughs> <laughs> Shall we move on to having an episode? Yes, it's all I think Freya we should. now. All right. Freya, tell us all about tell this us wonderful things. book. Very well. So, as we said, the book we are going to be doing a deep dive on today is The Jasmine Throne by Tasha Suri. This is book one of the Burning Kingdoms series. Mm. This is a high fantasy, which is set in an Indian-inspired secondary world. Book one certainly follows two central characters. So the first one is Malini, who is a princess of the Empire, whose zealot emperor brother has imprisoned her in a tower because she refused to immolate herself in the name of purity, and who is scheming to escape to depose slash probably kill her evil emperor brother, and she wants to get her reclusive eldest brother onto the Mm -hmm. throne. The second main character is Priya, who is a handmaiden chosen to serve the princess in the tower, whose secret backstory is that she escaped from a magical religious order as a child, which was wiped out when Malini's empire conquered her land. 
Mm-hmm. And the other points of view that we see who contributed a lot to the story are Priya's brother Ashok, who is the leader of a violent rebel group determined to expel the colonize, expel the colonizers and reclaim their magic and gods and self-rule. And Bumaka, who is a local girl who married the new governor of the city and who's now trying to protect as many people as she can while hiding her own magic, and is, who is also pregnant throughout the entire book, which yep. I really liked. <laughs> She's just being a badass while pregnant. Yep. She was my favorite. Uh, and I think the last sort of important player is Rao, who mm-hmm. is a foreign prince secretly allied to Malini, who knows that his fate is tied to helping her rise to power. Because it turns out having a zealot on the throne who likes just randomly burning people to death is not good for anybody, really. It's not good for anybody. Not not really working for any of the allied nations or the conquered ones. (laughs) No, indeed. Uh, so do you want to start then by talking about the idea of imperialism? Well, or do I think want, oh, we wanted so we'll start to start with, with a few content warnings, because, yes. dear listeners, we might get into some of these topics, but the book touches on all of them fairly deeply. So we wanted yep. particularly to warn for violence against women, for imperialist violence, for semi-graphic death descriptions, and for references to torture and drugging. Um, and those are most of the things that were on the page that you might want to watch out for if you're reading this book. And we probably won't get particularly yep. deep into those on air, but we wanted to give you the heads up in case we dip into it. Let's talk about that imperialist violence, shall we? Yes, indeed. Well, certainly you know, the, the, the emperor, was it Chandra, his name? So Malini's yes. brother is certainly presented as an absolutely, completely not, you know, he's a complete villain. He's not... Right. Uh, the particularly complex in terms of the moral, the morality of his actions. This give, is not what's to... his name for the from the Witcher. You know, this is not Julius Caesar. Yes, this is this, is, this guy out. is flat out, flat out bad. Uh, and so, on that hand, you have this. Yes, that he's clearly this bad thing. But at the same time, the there are a lot of people who are involved in the Empire, Malini being one of them, who are more sympathetic characters. So it's not just evil colonizers on one hand. And, you know, the the people who are being oppressed on the other. But it certainly does have a lot to say about the effects of this imperialism on the people who have been conquered. Mm-hmm. And it's, um, it's a complicated empire, as empires actually are. But one of the things that I really admired that Tasha did here was this is very clearly an empire made up of multiple countries who still have their own individual identities, and all of whom have ended up under this empire in different ways and for different reasons. And the the particular difficulty with uh, Priya's nation, Aharanya, was that they had been growing more powerful and the empire in the previous generation had seen them as a threat and had conquered them with particular violence and basically cast down the whole ruling class and really clamped down on them. Whereas in some of the other countries that we talk to, particularly where the nameless, the religion, the religion of the nameless god, and the places that Rao is from, um, and the people in that point of view cluster, um, it's more a collaboration where they're still ruling themselves. Right? And you can tell that it's the difference there is to do with how much fear exists mm. um, of the potential power of mm-hmm. the people who have been conquered. So the Aharanya and the the temple children and the religion yes. and the magic and the god there that was suppressed. It has been attempted to be completely wiped out, 
And you can tell it is coming from a place of these people have magic and they could fight back with it. Right. There's we a have, lot of we have violence, to stamp that out. There's a lot of the sort of systemic violence to the degree of like trying to wipe out the language, trying mm. to wipe out the traditional stories and the text of that country, because even the way of life of that country, which used to include queer marriage, is seen as a threat to this purity obsessed religion of the Mothers of Flames. Yeah. That's something that I really appreciated about what Tasha did in this book is that she just showed like how deep it has to go mm -hmm. to wipe out the entire sort of identity of a nation because like you can't ever entirely wipe it out. There's always going to be at least like scraps or ghosts or things that fall through the cracks or stories for children that uh, remain that can't be entirely wiped out. But like just the many, many axes of um, suppression uh, were very well done, I thought. And I was looking at a little bit the parallels between the ways that the Empire insists that all the temple children are dead and the ways that kind of modern American culture speaks of indigenous um, Native Americans as, you know, oh, they used to be around. Mm. They're a thing of the past. Um, and the ways in which the conquering group kind of imposes a story of extinction mm -hmm. as part of that. Yeah, right. and attempts to wipe out the stories that are still being told. Like one of the most, I think, upsetting and probably very realistic scenes is where uh, the Emperor's soldiers raid a, mm. a coffee house or whatever it is where there's a meeting of artists, like poets yeah. and philosophers, mm -hmm. um, who are actually probably connected to the rebels in some way, <laughs> but some of them possibly aren't. Um, right. But at the same matter. time, you can tell that they are being targeted because this idea of discussing conflicting philosophies and poetry that draws on the history that they're trying to stamp out is in itself a threatening act. Yeah. And that targeting of artists and poets as a hotbed of potential rebellion felt very sort of visceral and real. Mm. And I thought there was also the interesting contrast between the governor who Bumika married and the um, the left hand of the emperor who has arrived along with the sister to try to put more of the emperor's stamp on how they govern this country and the difference mm. in how they approach things. So at one point there's a terrorist attack and the governor is like, you know, we should put in a lockdown and make people go back to their houses and not be congregating in public. The other guy just runs around with soldiers just randomly killing people in the streets. Um, yeah. Um, I'll just um, do a terrorism <laughs> back at them and that'll totally that'll be effective. <laughs> yeah, and I, I thought it was, it was such a great conversation with the governor saying, okay, what you have just done is going to create a worse rebellion. What yep. we have to do now is give them the we have to let them celebrate a festival. Right. Like we have to give them something to calm them down. I have been here for ages. I know how to rule these people. Like it's still coming from a, a, a very imperialist mm. mindset, mm -hmm. but because he's been yeah. there for a long time and because he's been married to Bumika, who has been like slowly and gently working on his mindset yep. to try and turn him into something that is a bit more benign. He at least is attempting to come at it from a place of, I know how these people work. And looking at the other side of that, because I don't want to put all of the agency here on the imperialist side, looking at the difference between Ashok and Bumika and their approach to saving their country and saving their people, uh, Bumika married the enemy in an effort to control him and to 
kind of subverts some of his resources to saving her people. So she becomes very wealthy as the governor's wife. She uses that wealth to secretly hire orphans who have nowhere else to go to try to fund cures for the plague. But Ashok sees her. So Ashok is Priya's brother, who is the chief of the violent rebels. Ashok sees Bhumika as a betrayer, as a collaborator, mm. right? Mm. Um, and it's that question of like, what are morals worth against enough bread to live? Right. Yeah, yeah, because the the rebels aren't doing a particularly no, no. successful job. Like, there's <laughs> not anything. very many of them. They're trying to draw on a magic that is arcane and like nobody knows how to use it or how to get to the place where it is. And it's killing them. And it's killing them. And they're not really doing a great job of shaking off the oppressive yoke. But they are coming from a place of this is the only moral standpoint to take. Whereas Mm -hmm. Boomika is coming from a very different perspective about doing what you can within the situation you find yourself. And Priya is sort of in between in that Mm -hmm. she's mostly concerned with survival, helping people that she can with with her much more limited sphere of power than Boomika has. Uh, But also like she has this enormous bubbling anger on Mm. behalf of her land, but she doesn't have anywhere to place it. And it is a little bit, I think, gendered um, in the choice of who who takes which approach, right? Um, who is the willow and who is the oak, right? Um, right? Ashok is always going to be rigidly adhering to his morals and will always see that as right. Bumika will never see that as right when his people are dying under him. Mm. Um, yeah. And it's, it's interesting. It's super cool. Um, but I know we wanted to talk a little bit about the religion, both of the children of the temple and of the empire Mm. was this you freya that was me that was something that i see and this is something that i think i've seen quite a lot because i've been reading a bit of high fantasy in this Mm -hmm. vein recently but related to the idea of imperialism and how you stamp out a culture Mm -hmm. especially if you are trying to stamp out a magic Mm -hmm. it is to do with reframing the religion that you want to get rid of as witchcraft like Mm -hmm. which is a very loaded term you know, it's not just magic, it suddenly becomes something that is suspicious mm-hmm. and something that might be evil. And so that's why everyone who may be left over and has the ability to wield this magic has to hide it, because the imperialists have come in and said, you know, this isn't something that is valid. We had to we had to stamp things out because it was evil and dangerous and it's it's wicked witchcraft. And one of the interesting things with that is um, coinciding to when this with when this country was conquered, um, a plague had sprung up, uh, a magical plague that involves people sort of slowly growing vines under their skin and turning into plants, basically, until their bodies stop working and they die. And the traditional magic of the temple that Priya has and several of our other main characters have is in part around manipulating these flowers like when they when they get a power up flowers grow where they've been walking right Mm. and so i think that's also part of it is that it actually was fairly easy for the empire to reframe that holy magic into a curse Mm. because it's eating the flesh of the people who were nominally on the side of that religion but it's almost like their own gods, their own yaksha have, have betrayed them. Yeah, and turned against them. Yes. Mm-hmm. And like when mm-hmm. you have lost the favor of the gods, like that is a major blow to morale. And mm-hmm. when you are in the midst of being conquered, that is an incredibly valuable thing to have is morale. 
Because once mm-hmm. you have given up in your mind, then, like, might as well open the gates. Um, which is just an incredibly depressing thought. Yeah, whereas the religion of the Mothers of the Flame, from what I could read, and I might have missed something subtle, there isn't really a magic associated mm-hmm. with it. It's all to do with they, you know, that religion exerts power through ruthlessly expressing its tenets. Mm-hmm. And by expressing, I mean burning people. Uh, <sighs> and, you know, having this idea of, oh, it's all to do with the the mothers of the flame, these people who were, you know, have come before. And it's sort of about valorizing your own history, but also then twisting that history to fit with the mindset that you want to impose at the time. Mm. It's turning the bloody self-sacrifice of women into a blessing, um, almost like a lucky charm, right? But at the scale of empires. Um, Yeah. So sort of how you might pray for a test to go well or like for... uh, Whatever, for a good result today. It's that sort of thinking of, it's not a concrete magic, but it is a sort of well-wishing, a luck, a blessing. Mm, And it's a religion that starts from the standpoint of people being inherently bad. Mm. And that all you can do is, like, it's almost kind of Catholic in that sense, yeah. (laughs) That, you know, this idea of original sin is kind of baked in and... Uh, especially affecting women, but it, you know the, these all these moral and social rules, and that everybody has to be constantly striving for purity, mm. and it's almost impossible the way the religion is presented to actually achieve purity while you are a living and fallible human being. I did want us to talk a little bit though about what are the ones were, because there weren't just two religions. Yes. Who likes the nameless faith? I'm that like, was my it's favorite. so cool. So, dear listeners, I cool. mean, spoilers, spoilers for the book, spoilers for the book. Um, there is another religion where you don't go by your name because your name is given to you at birth, and it's told to your. It was told to your mother. I want to say it's whispered to her, and then you get taught it as a small child, but you never repeat it because your name is a prophecy of how you're going to die or how you're going to have an influence at like the peak of the influence of your life. Mm-hmm. And so you can only speak it at the right moment and you kind of sense when that is. But this is a religion of prophecy and it genuinely does have the magic of prophecy both in their names and in ways that you can kind of appeal to the gods over a pool of water and ask them to tell you of the future which I love, a prophecy. Yeah, I really I really liked this, this idea of the faith. And there were aspects of this that felt a little bit Buddhist and there were aspects that felt a little bit Jewish. And I'm not trying to read into what uh, Tasha was intending, but it, I liked this idea of a faith that was constantly about self-questioning mm. and questioning of what the purpose of your name is and how your fate is meant to interact with the world and how can you actually find a balance between self-determination and mm. having your path be fixed. And I love that there's this thing there with Rao's sister, who was actually one of Princess Malini's, you know, like proper handmaidens who did actually burn when mm. the emperor wanted them Voluntarily. to burn. Voluntarily. Voluntarily. And we discover that her well, name, quote unquote, that she had been voluntarily, voluntarily. Sure, voluntarily. But, but quote yeah, unquote, but, voluntarily, yeah. It was a but she had been given a name. than the alternatives. Yes. Yes, she had been given the name She Who Burns on the Pyre as a child. Yep. And someone says that, oh, it's a heavy thing to carry a death name. Yeah. Because some yeah. people's names is their death. Not everybody. It sounds like it's right. like a small percentage of people, but some people are told as a child, 
your name is your death. And so she always knew that that was how she was going to die. (sighs) And it's such an intimate thing to turn into a tool of prophecy, a name, right? Yeah. It's so intimate. Um, Mm. One of the things we see at one point along this is uh, one of the characters of this uh, culture tells his name to a dying friend because the dying friend can't do anything, use it, right? So that's safe. And that's the only time that this character can kind of be truly known outside Mm. of the purpose of the name being realized. And simply from a writing craft perspective, that was used so well to Mm. like tantalize the reader. Here is this secret. Here's something that um, is clearly informing this character of Rao so much, but we're not going to tell you what it is because we can't because it's a secret, but they keep hinting at it. I'm like, I and see what this is going to be. I see what this is going to be. Tasha is just very good. Tasha is very, very good. But She's I also, very good. one of the things I really loved in this book is you have multiple examples of different people interrogating and choosing to practice the same religions in very, very different ways. So with mm-hmm. the religion of the nameless ones, you have Rao, who's super curious and like active and investigative and goes out into the world and is trying to do things and make things happen all the time. He, he has a ton of agency. And then you have Malini's older brother, Aditya, who kind of has this almost pathological acceptance. Um, yeah. He isn't even quite fully of this religion, but he wants to be. And he is so passive that it is actively damaging to those around him and his cause at times. And I mm, found and that fascinating. Can, yeah, I found, he was such an interesting character because you can tell that he has taken refuge in this religion, partly because it just appeals to him on a fundamental level mm. more than the religion that he was born into. The, you know, which very, I don't fucking blame him! Which I don't blame him at all, exactly. <laughs> but also because he has realised that he is on a fundamental level unsuited right. to being what he was born to be, which right. is the emperor. Right. And he has fled, essentially, the thing that people expect of him to become something where he does not have to make decisions. Yeah, but like I yeah. was just sitting there being like, I want to shake him. Like, oh, absolutely. Up, like you have huge sympathy for him, but you want to because shake him. like he knows he knows that his younger brother, who is then who then becomes the emperor, is like a weirdo psychopath, like crazy person who shouldn't be emperor. Like, is there not a difference between like a person who would be not that great at being emperor and who wouldn't enjoy it versus a person who literally should not be given power? I yeah, feel and like it's... you've written a book about this, Alex. <laughs> Have I? Because <laughs> yes. I think, yeah, Aditya is very much presented as a sympathetic failure of liegehood. Yeah. Like he has yeah, yeah, put yeah. his own comfort ahead of any sense of responsibility towards his people. Because if he was really, really, really thinking about the good of his people and the good of his empire, he would recognize that having a violent religious psychopath on the throne is not the greatest thing for Just, the yeah. greater good. Yeah. Just get the throne and fucking, I don't know, marry Priya or something and be bossed around by your wife all the time. It'll be fine, buddy. There are so many ways to or be a puppet like, king. Or like become king and then, I don't know, <laughs> deconstruct the monarchy and institute representative democracy. Yeah, that's also an option. <laughs> but that would require strength of character and making decisions, yeah, which he yeah, doesn't yeah. want to do. Yeah, yeah. this is hard. 
I had this as a dot point later down, but I had Aditya as Lanzachen discuss. Oh, yeah. <laughs> because he's absolutely the kind of person who's like, oh no, I've made a bad decision. Time to go into seclusion for the rest of my life. I'm going to play a flute about it in the moonlight. I'm going to play a flute about it and <laughs> read would. some books and, and never emerge from my house. Yes. I will yeah. gaze into this limpid pool. <laughs> <laughs> and I will uh. faint. In this, oh, and I just, how much I just want to garden. Well, I just want to, I just want to clarify, like as much as we're like ribbing on Aditya a little bit, like it's because like he's a good character and we like he's him. He's a great character. <laughs> yeah, well, I'm just mad at him as a person. Yes, yes. Yeah, yes. I think because you mostly see him through the eyes of Rao, who loves him but is frustrated with him, and Malini, who loves him but wants to shake him so hard. Sure. Because Mood. she's in this really difficult position of knowing that he is the best option because of the fact that she is unable to seize power because she's a woman. Well, I want to talk about craft for a moment because Mm. Tasha did this amazing job throughout the book of interweaving our modern perception of Malini as a character with Malini's perception of herself as a character and even Priya's, where it is just inconceivable to anyone in this world, except for one person, which spoilers, that Malini could ever be a good candidate for emperor. Mm. But we, as readers, seeing the ways that she behaves, the ways that she thinks about things, the Mm trade-offs that she makes, by the time she's, like, not drugged and dying anymore, I think it's pretty clear that she would be a great fucking emperor. Oh, yeah. Like, she's able... There's that moment where she is trying to convince Priya of something, and she, like... Con- consciously intentionally draws on this mantle of leadership mm-hmm. and like exudes liege vibes <laughs> at her and i'm like cool great you're doing a great job mm. yeah but, but the, the, the system the society is just so fundamentally bone deep sexist yeah that it's just inconceivable just like Bumika could never be the governor of this nation that's just not mm. a thing that could happen yeah. yeah. Whereas, I, whereas you do see near the end of the book when it comes to like who's going to be in power where, that there is this, once they have a stripping away of that sexist colonizing mindset, it is actually quite natural that Bumika would be the one yeah. who steps into the position of power. Mm-hmm. And even Ashok, who clearly has views about who should be in power and it should be him, does come to accept pretty easily without any sort of sexist bullshit in the way. Like he has, right. he thinks he deserves to be leader because he, of his approach to leadership, not because he's a man. I think it was never clear to me in Aharanya the degree to which uh, women got to rule because we saw. I know we saw in like the nameless, the the. I don't remember what the country name was for the country of the nameless religion, but I don't think they would uh, allow women. Uh, Alor, Alor, Alor. Yes, mm. you're right. Yeah. Um, so it was it was interesting because again this is a thing which shifts in the different countries that had different cultures, but mm. certainly like you're saying Freya the imperial attitude towards what was appropriate by gender is all it's got its filthy fingers all over Aharanya by this point in time, mm. and certainly and the like the the zealotry of the religion that Chandra yeah. is coming from is very much coming from this. There's a um, a place of deep misogyny, and there was a little mm-hmm. quote which was about his distaste for impurity in women, and about how he sees this purification and burning as a gift, 
Uh, yeah, but it's really, so it's really rooted so in gross. this misogynistic hatred. And it reminded me of the song Hellfire from the um, Hunchback of Notre Dame oh, movie, mm-hmm. which is where Frollo Fuck. sings yeah. about the feelings of lust that Esmeralda has created Incited. within him and yeah. how he has yeah. to burn her because she is For the source costing. of those feelings. And he, and he will purify himself and her through that burning. And when will me men the... learn to take responsibility for themselves? That's <laughs> mm, a fucking move. That is an excellent question. Yeah. But it reminded me a lot, I was thinking in this, of the later seasons of Game of Thrones and the Sept of Baelor in King's mm. Landing. And that mm-hmm. whole thing with working Cersei through the city and like the, the priest zealots kind of seizing control and shaming everyone, basically. But mm. it's scary. Yeah, and it's... It's from a place of trying to wield power by making people feel shame and women especially feel shamed of just being themselves. Mm. Yeah. Mm-hmm. But one of the <sighs> cool things also I thought was Freya's favorite character and the ways in which within a misogynistic system, it almost creates um, hidden spaces to wield power when mm. you are overlooked. I thought yes, and I thought I thought you would probably like this as well, Macy, because it's I very do. sort of empresses in empresses in the palace. It is. You know how do you how do you wield power when you are meant to be the the, the consort of power? <laughs> <laughs> mm-hmm. A weak woman. Yep. And Bubaker is just so good, <sighs> so good. And one of the things I really loved was she has clearly over time built this reputation of herself as like a slightly reclusive kind of fragile woman with her little house in the rose garden which is lovely and twee until you remember that she has magical power over plants and roses have giant fuck off thorns and then she starts eviscerating people with rose bushes and I'm just like okay you're the best iconic frankly iconic (laughs) goals she is so iconic yeah. yeah, and then she's like, "Oh, we're escaping from the city, Sarah. We have to stop so I can give birth. Inconvenient." And then, like <laughs> two days later, she's like, "Okay, onwards to me becoming Here governor." Here's this child. Somebody Here's hold this child. This. I've got yeah, this someone hold this baby while I step onto this throne. Thank you. Ah, <sighs> oh, she was great. She is great. But um, another of the themes that we touched on a fair bit in this was the different types of power between the classic fantasy lead characters the nobles the kings and queens the Mm -hmm. rich people and what you can get done when you're overlooked when you're just a servant when you're just a handmaid um and i found it super interesting how the most notable noble of our point of view characters was so utterly stripped of her agency right yes yes because it sort of makes you ask like so you are allegedly a princess but are you a princess in a vacuum are you a princess when you are locked in a prison cell alone except for one attendant who hates you (laughs) like what does that mean in that situation and even always as a princess uh, across all of these stories we see so many noble women who are ordered to do this must marry that yeah all of their finances are under control like if you look at tasha's previous books the realm of ash and the other ones you see again the ways in which these nominally powerful by societal position women are in fact locked in cages yeah Hmm. whereas priya just wandering around the market randomly adopting orphans in the first chapter why not you go to the market you get an orphan yeah seems reasonable i picked up i picked up two melons some cloth 
and this 32 boy, eggs 32 eggs and an orphan <laughs> i guess i could feed my 32 eggs to an orphan i don't know <sighs> well i might use that that chance then to talk a little bit about the romance i'm just gonna like jump out of order because Go that it. that contrast between who between Melini and Priya has power and what kind of power and when they have it is such a huge key part mm-hmm. of how their romance plays out because there is a romance between them and mm-hmm. it does the thing that I often really like seeing in romances where one person has social power and the other has magical power <laughs> and yes. it can lead to some absolutely great things where Melini assumes that she is the kind of person who has power over other people and she is very manipulative and very used to using people and she has some mixed feelings about the ways in which she is using Priya but as the book goes on and Priya's magic becomes more powerful we get to a point where Priya literally has to just stand there and say you literally can't hurt me there is no way I wouldn't let you I'm too powerful yeah. So chill out about it. <laughs> and I love, I like seeing that in, in, like, I'm just thinking of like KJ Charles's The Magpie Lord series mm-hmm. where there's one person who has all of the social and wealth power and the other person is of a much lower social class, has, has much less money, magic. but has the magic. Yeah. And so he can say, you know, this is fine. This is still a relationship of equals because there is nothing you can actually do to me that I don't want you to. Right. Because right. I could stop you at any moment with a snap of my fingers. Yeah, and I was just going—I was going to say pretty much the same thing. It just makes it easier to balance out the ethics, because like when mm. you're writing a a romance, like it's not really love unless they are meeting each other as equals, right? Mm-hmm. And if you are facing this huge social divide, um, like there has to be something on the other side of the scales that can help bring it at least closer back into balance. Right, because mm. otherwise you risk it being coercive. Mm-hmm. Exactly. Yeah, absolutely. Yep. And like, once you've got that as a starting point to say, okay, that we're playing with power here, we're playing with equal status, then you can just sort of lean right into all the other delicious romance <laughs> tropes that are done, mm-hmm. such as sexy hair washing, which I thought you would, <laughs> yes, you might appreciate, yes. Alex. Yes, <laughs> as a fan of sexy hair washing, I, I do love um, a sexy hair washing scene. <laughs> yeah, but it's you know even when. They're starting at a place of not necessarily being like outright enemies, enemies, but there's definitely enmity there. We've got like the the conqueror and the oppressed and they cannot trust each other because one of them is being used as part of a mechanism to keep the other one prisoner. Mm. And so you've got this hostility to begin with, but then they have forced proximity and they have to work together to achieve their individual ends. And oh, it's carrying my love while wounded. Yes, bathing oh, together, in bathing together, pool. holding a knife to my beloved's heart, and uh, absolutely threatening to cut her heart and didn't kill that her. Happen, like twice. Oh yeah, there's a lot of like sexy knife holding to people's hearts. It's it's very good. I respect Tasha. I respect Tasha. <laughs> it's a yeah. lesbian book. You gotta have some sexy knife holding in a lesbian book. <laughs> that's true. That's true. That's how it be- is. How it be. <laughs> Freya has highlighted my dot point. Um. I, for one, really appreciated that the, quote, I married the conquering leader to secure protection for my subjugated people, end quote, is not played as a romance. Mm. Boomika does not love her husband. She she does, like, she has, her, like, as far as it is useful, he's fond of him. Yeah, she has, like, these moments of being like, I tolerate you. Occasionally. <laughs> like, yeah, like, you could be more terrible. Like, <laughs> 
And she has... I genuinely believe humans should get to live. And I think she has hope for what she could do with him. Like, there's that moment where she is testing how much influence she actually has. She's like, I'm telling you this is what's going to happen. Here is what we have to do. If you trust me at all, do what I say. And he just flatly refuses. And that's the moment where her bond to him breaks. Because she's just like, okay, despite everything, despite how long we've lived together and how well-behaved I have been... There is something in him that will find him trust never me. trust me, and therefore yeah. I can't trust him. I mean, it wasn't even trust. It was she just wasn't a person. Mm. Right. Right. He just never saw her to as him. a person. Yes. So he wasn't even, the, what I got from that, he wasn't even evaluating her words, really. He was like, oh, she's just being hysterical. He wasn't really thinking about it at all. No. And I think that hurt her worse. Yeah. Mm. Like a wife is just something that you have in your house to bear object. children for you. Yeah. It's like my refrigerator is keeping my food cold. Yes. I generally approve of it doing that. But if it was to try to tell me how to invest my stocks, I would have to Like, no, your refrigerator. <laughs> yes. <laughs> That's an analogy. Go back to gestating, my dear. Go back, go, go back to holding on to my 32 eggs. <laughs> you see what I did there? Do you see what I did there? Uh, yes, thank you. Thank you, Alex. I'm glad that the eggs can uh, be a running joke now. Amazing. Uh, we have about four episodes left to have running jokes. Well, it depends but, on, um, it depends on like how, I mean, just a running joke in this episode, but if they keep sending you more eggs, then they will. They will. So you'll continue having 32 eggs. So this could be a thing, dear listeners. Take bets now. <laughs> Is this going to be a thing until the end of the year? Let's talk about family. And instead of oh. instead of eggs. <laughs> Freya, I was just reordering because I couldn't think of it. But honestly, we could jump to anything you want because we just created chaos. Yeah. We did create chaos. What do you feel like, Freya? Ooh, what would I like to poison. talk about? The thing about families I wanted to say is that I think one of the thesis statements here is family is complicated, TM. Because <laughs> obviously a lot of the... Malini is like preach. And the, the enmity and complexity is between Priya and Malini and their respective brothers and the ideological uh, differences between them and their respective brothers. But also there is a quite a few like mini found families that again are not the found family in mm. a sense of, oh, we have all come together and we love each other and get along and support each other. But created we are a created almost. family. And so there's this idea of the, the temple children, the, those of them mm-hmm. who are left, um, even though Priya and Ashok are actually are siblings, siblings, they are also they also look on Bumika as a sibling because mm. they were part of a strong, a, a tight knit group. And then you have Malini's attitude towards the girls who died on the pyre uh, in her place mm. and even to people like Rao, so people who she thinks of as from her childhood in a way, mm. as part of the, the family right. of the royals and their attendants and her people who were friends with her in her youth. And you can tell that she kind of thinks of that as a family and she has a lot of guilt about the, the, the women who died and she thinks of them as her sisters. Yeah. Mm. Yeah, 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 and then you have Bumika, who has created quite deliberately a little, you know, semi-family for herself of her own people because she has, you know, she can't create a family, yeah. even though she is technically gestating a family with the oppressor. She's right. created this little, yeah, all of the because orphans that she's the, brought into her household. That's the power that she can wield. That's the the things mm. that she can do. I mean, I'll be perfectly honest. I'm thinking about it now. Bumika almost reminds me of Josie Zhu and like founding a sect mm. of assassins. Like she's building, it's not even a family as much as it is like 
an organization that is also a family right she has so many people she's saved so many street kids that now they're in their 20s mm. you know mm. um that are perfectly loyal like her husband gets killed by his own chief guardsman because the chief guardsman is more loyal to Boomika than to him and that is what she has done she has threaded them throughout his household almost like ivy growing up a wall between the bricks mm-hmm. right um and she has created this sect under his nose and that's really like cool of her yeah yes this is now the boomerka fangirl podcast <laughs> yeah she's just, we just this is she's me neat. and macy for that little pom pom to be like boomerka boomerka <laughs> Uh, but Macy, would you like to speak briefly about the amount of fucky plant magic in this book? Oh, yeah. Macy, take a corner. Yes. It's uh, been a hot second since we've a had corner. a fun it's fact, Macy Corner. It's not even been a hot. Wasn't the last episode literally the fucky plant? Oh, that's episode? true. You had a whole corner in the last. <laughs> it's, it's not even Here's been a thing. hot minute. It's been like a hot second. A hot fortnight. Uh, I haven't edited that episode, which is why I don't remember Amazing. that. It doesn't, it doesn't exist. exist. No, that's fine. I completely understand. Um, so, dear listeners, we got to a part fairly early on where Priya, our main character, is adopting the plucky orphan who is afflicted by the fucky plant. And plague. I stopped and went, oh, this is a Macy book. <laughs> yeah, because, like, the, the, one of the things that they say is, and, like, looks at his hand and, like, the vines were growing beneath his skin yep. and were just about to pop out. And I'm like, that's literally the first story sale I ever had, mm. a cradle of vines, is about a young girl growing vines under her skin. Isn't it wonderful yeah. when you share, like, sale that I made. when you share, like, imagery with someone like that? Yeah. 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 It's just... It's just really neat. But one of the things I wanted to talk about here also was when we say that Malini was imprisoned in a tower. Let's take a step back. Malini is imprisoned on the top of the temple in which the previous ruling class, the priests of Aharanya, burned themselves and all of their apprentices to death. Mm-hmm. So it's hilariously ironic. And the only way up this temple is you climb up a set of sculptures that are so treacherous and crumbling and kind of malevolent mm-hmm. that people die mm. trying to climb this thing because the priests aren't there to, to force the temple to behave itself anymore. Um, and so there's an early scene where Priya rescues one of her friends who's fallen on the temple. Um, and once Priya has gained the whole magic, so Malini can't just walk down the temple on her own. She can't escape. But Priya manages to tame the temple. And I just thought that that was a really cool, like, physical manifestation of dominion over the mm. land and the land itself rejecting the conquerors and kind of being still in mourning. Yeah. And it's also very fairy tale. Like, there's a big sleeping mm-hmm. beauty kind of aspect it's to like this. It's like Amal's the, the Glass and Iron. Oh, oh yes. I only remember glasses. Seasons, Seasons of Glass and Iron. Glass and Seasons iron. of Glass and Iron, yeah. Mm. It's a really cool fairy tale, like you were saying. Claire. Yeah, I was going to say, yes, I was saying the reason I think it's got these big sleeping beauty elements is you have this idea of a princess trapped in a tower and also the fact that she's kept almost insensible with drugs. Mm. And mm. part of what Priya does is quite literally wake her up mm-hmm, mm-hmm, and mm-hmm. help her to get out. Ah, and yeah. I see, I see. Yes. Mm, and all of the like you know, creepy vines and things are, you know, you have that imagery of a castle where somebody has slept for a hundred years and it's become right. encased in vines and thickets and things. 
like I don't, I don't I don't know if it was a deliberate thing, but I like seeing those little hints of, of those little echoes of fairy tale motif. Lots of really cool plants. Yes, stuff. yes, and like malevolent. But you don't really know to what extent the plant magic and this rot is actually evil. There's this really interesting right. hint at it being a big bad. Yeah. Uh, to do with the magic, which we haven't really gone into, the magic of. Aharanya and what the temple children were meant to do, which is go into this like creepy magical, you know, the, you know, the deathless waters, the, waters the deathless yeah. waters three times. And every time you go in, you get more hollowed out by the mm-hmm. magic and become less human and more magical. And there's a brief conversation where they're talking about this idea of what goes into the children when they come out of the water is similar to the rot that is creeping through the land and it's Mm. almost sentient and you're not quite sure is this a sentience that is creeping through from that other dimension so tasha suri really Mm. goes in for like secondary dimension magic bullshit like you you go to another realm Mm -hmm. and it sounds like yes like the realm of bash does that particularly well and it seems like this religion of the deathless waters is to do with just drawing on the magic of the gods, the Aksa, but there could be something else that is using these children or is now using mm. the land as a pathway in. Mm. And that is what the rot is. But we don't really know yet. I'm assuming we're going to find out more about that in, in later books. Book. But I thought it was just sort of dripped in quite subtly in a really creepy way. Because part of the origin story for the great forests that surround and haunt the main city of this story is that some of them, you know, they used to be Yaxon, mm-hmm. right? Mm-hmm. Is that right, Freya? I can't remember the I think the details, story but... that Priya tells Malini is that there was that man who had, like, the ill-fated stars or something, oh, right. and he married a tree to get rid of his mm. bad luck, and the tree turned right. into a Yaxa. Yes. Yeah. Right, and so there's this kind of association where the folk tales of this country are saying these were real physical beings mm-hmm. who were not human, who walked among us. And as a reader, you're like, is that literally true, or is that folk tale true in like a cultural? Yeah, yeah mm. exactly. And that tale, that and tale like, is quite a good segue, I think, into the the other theme that I wanted to discuss because that tale is about cheating your fate. Like if you are born ill-fated then you trick your fate by marrying a tree first. You give your first marriage to a tree and then you can go on to marry somebody normally having averted your your ill fate by marrying a tree first, which I which I think is delightful. Uh, but it does again it tells you that the um, mindset of the Aharanya people is to do with you know your fate not necessarily being set and you can mm. you can mm. find your own destiny whereas the and nameless the nameless god, god is very set. much around yes. set destiny and that weird balance between how much are you allowed to know and how much is in your control versus yeah. the god's control and the you know the imperial religion very much being about sin and purification and not so much about they're like this is the perfect world that we're trying to create but it's not so much about fate but Malini is having says a f- that you matter less as a person like in that religion mm. right the other two it's very much about you you having a fate and thus are important and the gods care about you and see you whereas in the imperial one you're kind of just like right. yeah and Malini's brother is trying to make her believe that her fate is to die on the pyre uh, and so and she refuses to accept that so she gets locked in a tower and then she refuses to accept that so she is constantly fighting the external fate mm-hmm. that is being forced upon her mm-hmm, mm-hmm. and Priya is somebody who was reared with one fate that was then taken mm-hmm. away from her and so she her journey is towards learning to use that power to work out what kind of person she wants to be with it 
now that she can no longer be and what she like was. almost like she fled her fate. Right. Right? Because part of it was that early on, she couldn't remember the details of how to access her power or access the Deathless Waters because she kind of locked it away in her mm-hmm. own mind to protect herself. Mm. And at one point, yeah, Melini says you almost, or one, one of them says in the narration, you almost burned too, just like me. And there's this sense that both of them have escaped the fate of burning. And now that they're out mm. the other side of it, they can decide what they want to be and do. They've passed through the flames. We are running close to the end of the episode. We can just... Oh, no, I was just going to say that, you know, this this book is being held up as part of the Saffron Sapphic Trilogy. trilogy. Um, (laughs) And as someone who has... I have just recently finished reading The Unbroken by C.L. Clarke, which is a very, Mm. very similar discussion of imperialism and Mm -hmm. what can happen between the oppressed and the ways in which... Uh, religion and culture being suppressed and magic being suppressed is a way mm. of exerting power. So it's very much mm. in conversation with this book. So I think if you like The Jasmine Throne and would like to see a similar thing played out in a different way, uh, definitely recommend The Unbroken. And if you like the idea of somebody uh, rejecting their fate and yes. fighting to seize their own despite uh, a society that says their gender says they can't have that fate, then She Who Became the Sun by Shelley so Parker Chan. Uh, is also doing that. So as well as all being sapphic books with yellow-orange covers, <laughs> these three books are doing something quite similar thematically, yeah, and yeah, I yeah. definitely recommend reading all three of them and thinking and chewing it over, because they're all so good. Wonderful. In conclusion, go, go read The Jasmine Throne. It's great, and Tasha is just very good at her job. Just very good yeah. at her job, I think we I can mean, all Alex, agree on that. I mean, Alex, all of, all of the listeners have already read it. Remember they went oh, that's and right. read it in that beautiful oh, that's right. break that you gave them at the beginning. Thank you, dear listeners. <laughs> well done. <laughs> Hey everybody, thanks for joining us for this episode of Be the Serpent, a podcast of extremely, extremely deep literary merit. I'm very glad you listened to my recommendation to stop the episode and read The Jasmine Throne real quick before continuing. Uh, Tasha's work is so rich and innovative and so full of talent, I am frankly honored that I get to share an industry and a genre with her. Uh, I don't think I have much else to add there about the book itself, so I will just remind you to please start sending us questions or games or discussion prompts for the episode 100 extravaganza. We'll be recording that sometime in the beginning of November, but since Freya's book launch will be around that time, we haven't pinned down exactly what day that'll be. So the earlier you send in your questions, the better. And we have some even more exciting topics to talk about in upcoming episodes. On the next episode, two weeks hence, on October 6th, we'll be discussing the trials and tribulations of swapping bodies with someone. Uh, If you want to prepare in advance, one of the tentpoles for that episode is the anime movie Your Name, which, by the way, was incredible. Holy shit. Uh, So if you have a friend who's into stuff like that, maybe give them a heads up. In the meantime, feel free to continue the conversation with us. Questions, comments, breathless adulations? Contact us at serpentcast at gmail.com, at serpentcast on Twitter and Tumblr, and if you enjoy the podcast, please consider supporting us on Patreon. And by the way, did you know that someone is thinking about you right now? A nice someone who likes you very much, or who will like you, because maybe you haven't met them yet.